Welcome to Central Line, the AHA podcast. This is the official podcast of the American Animal Hospital Association, dedicated to simplifying the journey towards excellence in veterinary medicine for every member of the veterinary team. Here's your host, Dr. Katie Berlin. Hi, welcome back to Central Line. I'm your host, Dr. Katie Berlin, and I have two esteemed guests with me today. We are going to be talking about a theme that I really love, that I'm so glad that um, that these two women approached me and said, you know, this is something we'd really love to talk about. Are you interested? I'm absolutely super interested in this topic, and I think we don't give it enough attention in veterinary medicine. So I'm super excited we're having this conversation about collaborative care. Um, Elizabeth Maxwell and Candice Manganero, welcome to Central Line. Thank you for having us, Katie. Thanks for having us. Uh, So both of you are doctors, and you work together uh, in some capacity, although not in the same building. And we'll get more into the relationship that the two of you have uh, coming up. But before we get started, I just wanted to ask you both quickly to share a little bit about yourself, who you are, what you do, how you came to be here. Dr. Maxwell, do you want to start? Sure, sure. Um, So I am uh, from Miami, Florida, originally. I went to Ross University for vet school. I did various internships, did my residency at University of Illinois, and then I, a uh, surgery residency at University of Illinois. And then I did a surgical oncology fellowship at University of Florida, uh, after which I stayed on um, as a clinical assistant professor in surgical oncology. Uh, I'm also on the board of directors for the Collaborative Care Coalition, uh, which has brought me here to you today. <laughs> I love that. And I had heard about the Collaborative Care Coalition, but didn't know a whole lot about it. And so we had a little intro conversation where we talked a little bit about it. And I've done some some digging around. And I just I think it's super cool. But I also think it's also great to take this opportunity to talk about it. Because um, I know from my own experiences in practice, the idea of collaboration between general practitioners and specialists and emergency veterinary care teams is sometimes a little bit fraught. And it's nice to think about us all as being on the same team. So anyway, more of that to come. Dr. Manganero, would you please share a little bit about yourself? Absolutely. So I'm a Canadian, but uh, grew up basically in Central Florida. So we moved when I was about seven. So Central Florida, went to University of Central Florida for my undergrad and then went up to UF for vet school and then came back to Central Florida. Um, And I'm a general practitioner, dogs and cats and just regular stuff. (laughs) Which regular stuff doesn't mean easy. (laughs) Yeah, Yeah. (laughs) Um, yeah, my background is in general practice, too. And so uh, I definitely, definitely understand it takes a special kind of patience to be in general practice. Um, So, okay. Well, I also wanted to ask you guys a personal question uh, just so we can get to know a little bit more about you. And so I asked you to choose a question to answer. Um, And uh, Dr. Maxwell, which question did you choose? Uh, If I could put a post-it on every veterinary professional's mirror to see first thing in the morning, what would it say? Yes. And I actually have uh, this on my desktop uh, computer at work that I see every morning. So that's what I thought of. Uh, and, and the quote is, uh, a smooth sea never uh, made a skilled sailor. I love that one. Yeah. I love that one. Yeah, so true. <laughs> and most vets don't have smooth seas, no. hardly ever. So <laughs> we must be pretty good sailors. <laughs> Hey, well, I have a post-it note on my computer that says suck it. (laughs) (laughs) 
Mine says hit record. (laughs) (laughs) All right. Well, I do feel like we've learned a little bit about all of all of us. (laughs) (laughs) Simple and to the point. Um, Okay. Well, good. And, uh, and I love those answers. (laughs) All right. So we're talking about collaborative care today. And um, I, I just wanted to start off by asking a little bit about the Collaborative Care Coalition. Can you just give us a rundown of just like what is that coalition and what is its purpose? Oh boy, my lights went out. <laughs> is that okay? Yeah, that's fine. <laughs> All right. Uh, so the Collaborative Care Coalition, we also refer to it as the CCC. It's a volunteer-based nonprofit organization that's comprised of uh, primary care veterinarians, specialists, uh, individuals from academia and industry partners. And um, the mission of, um, of the CCC is essentially to achieve optimal health care for animals, advance veterinary profession, and evolve the relationship between primary care veterinarians and specialists. I love that. And there's a lot encompassed in that mission. Like that's a, it's lofty goals, but also something that we can work towards in little bits in everything that we do, right, in our work as as veterinary teams. Yeah, exactly. And and one of the the um, main areas of focus for the CCC is uh, in research. So veterinarians always uh, are about evidence based medicine, you know. And so mm-hmm. a lot of our focus is in research that shows that collaboration improves outcomes. I love that. So you found that actually working together as a healthcare team, a unified healthcare team, um, improves patient care and outcomes overall. Yeah. Yeah, That's, that's nice because I, there are, there does always seem to be that group of people that think it's soft science, you know, when you're talking about collaboration and communication and, um, professional development in that way, that isn't just hard clinical skills. And, um, thus, as we talked about very often on this podcast, like the softer, the stuff that is considered softer sciences is sometimes the hardest stuff of all to get right. So um, that I, I like hearing that there's evidence behind that. Yeah. Um, so uh, Dr. Manganero, how are you involved in the CCC if you are, and how do you know Dr. Maxwell? So I'm mostly just, like I said, the mm-hmm. GP, I'm, I'm out kind of in, in the, in the realm of, of the kind of basic mm-hmm. world and getting people up to, um, uh, to Dr. Maxwell and, and some of the other, um, referring veterinarians is, is kind of my role in that. And so, uh, when she suggested doing the podcast, she's like, we have emails going back to like 2014. Yeah. So it's just one of those, uh, it, you know, one of those things that if you see enough, you're sending enough and then you develop this relationship and, and that's kind of my seat in it right now. <laughs> yeah, that's great. And you're right. You know, we do develop a relationship for better or for worse, with the specialists that we refer to as general practitioners. And I can recall so many phone calls and interactions that I've had with specialists over the years, really good ones, you know, ones where I felt like we really had a rapport and ones that really weren't that way at all. And I always felt like kind of a thorn in their side. And I don't know how much of that was my own perception and how much of it was actually the way that they were approaching me. Um, but 
I do feel like that's not an uncommon feeling among our colleagues. Absolutely. Yeah. 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 And yeah, same, same. There's, you know, especially now with, with the demand for everybody, right. It's, it's hard to necessarily get into my favorite sometimes. And so there's more phone calls being done. And so, um, different conversations and, and different kind of, yeah, relationships. Yeah, absolutely. I, I remember sending, there's an ophthalmologist in Pennsylvania that I used to refer to a lot when I lived there and she, uh, Dr. Brady Beal, and she was fantastic. And she, I remember was listening to, she was examining a patient that I had sent her. I think it was a Basset hound. And there were a lot of those <laughs> sending the Basset hounds to ophthalmology, but I think he had a heart murmur that she heard when she examined him that day. And she called me and said, I'm sending him back to you because this heart murmur isn't in his record. And I think it's new. And she's like, I don't have any idea why he has a heart murmur. That is not my job. So I'm sending him back to you and you guys can finish the work up. And I thought that that just yeah. made me feel so good because she was kind of like, I don't use these big heart words. Not my spot. Yep, not yeah. my area. And she was, she's like such a smart and capable specialist. And she also just doesn't hesitate to act like a human being on the phone with us. And I just, I, the fact that I remember that, and that was, I think in like 2011 or something, the fact that I remember that means that phone calls with specialists don't always go that way. Um, And I, I was just wondering, Dr. Maxwell, how do you feel about that? You know, is, do you feel like there is an issue where, specialists don't feel like they can develop that relationship with primary care vets where they feel like they're overwhelmed or the primary care vets don't want that relationship from them? Like what is the roadblock there for a lot of people? Do you know? I I think sometimes very simply it's time, Mm -hmm. right? So time to communicate. Communication is the biggest thing. And with everyone being overworked and burned out, you know, to take the time and get on the phone to talk to someone about a case Sometimes it's just not there. And when, you know, specialists are just sending records, you know, from appointments to the, to their primary vet, like there's no relationship building at that point. So the relationship sort of has to be established at the beginning, you know, for the first few cases, you're calling, you're kind of having that, that communication and then maybe emails and then the paperwork can, can kind of continue that more informal relationship. But, uh, you know, I think that one of the, the biggest roadblocks right now is just having the time <laughs> and, yeah. you know, it, we have to be intentional about the time. We have to want to build those relationships because if we don't put that as a priority, then it's never going to happen. That's so true. And that that's actually really closely parallels how we are with clients, right? Any veterinarian with clients, yeah. if you don't take the time to build those relationships, you're not going to reap the benefits of that relationship later on down the road. Eventually, it will save you time to have that kind of relationship with your clients. And, you know, even like fear-free, low-stress handling, you know, taking the time with your patients at the beginning probably will smooth things out very quickly down the road because you won't have to build that trust every single visit. Um, but I mm-hmm. I was thinking about Dr. Manganero, you said, um, you know, we're all feeling overloaded right now. Um, everybody's at capacity or past capacity. How do you two think that collaborative care can actually help help us deal with the overload that we're all facing? So that was part of you know what I was thinking about too is that when 
I'm one of those that I want my clients to know every single mm -hmm. option. If I, so for in Dr. Maxwell's case, we're talking about on, oncological cases. And so I always try to get my owners, you know, even if there's lots of things, I'm not going to know all of the things. And I always encourage them to at least have a consult right now. A consult might be months out, or if that owner is like not going to do that, then there's, I don't want to take up that slot for somebody else that could have got in. So now it's more, and I do more of, we were talking, Dr. Maxwell and I were talking about, you know, she does email and text and I'm like, oh, I don't want to text you because I don't want to like interrupt the, I don't want to take away that quiet time. I don't want to be like that, that you know, person asking for advice off hours or whatever. Um, so I will usually send a, a, an email, like, here's the case summary. Let me know when you guys can, if you want to email me back or you want to call me, whatever works. But that way I can get a little bit of, this is what we would potentially expect. This is the, you know, rough idea of what we might be talking about. And then I can communicate that to the owners. And then we've already started that where I've gotten the notes, like, this is what we're going to do. This is what I quoted. The owners already know that part. And so I'm hopefully taking up, not taking up a space for, something that's not going to move forward in, in that realm. Um, and so I think that, and right now that's harder because of the time, but it's also more important because of the lack of time. So um, it's kind of both ways there on, on uh, finding the time to, to communicate that between both me and the specialist and, and, and the owner so that everybody's on the same page. And that's always my goal is for everybody to know everything that's going on. Yeah. And, you know, I honestly don't mind when cases come for <laughs> the conversation, you know, even mm -hmm. if they don't pursue surgery, I never, I never have that feeling that, oh, they took up a surgery slot, you know. Okay. Um, but honestly, <laughs> what I find really helpful just from the specialty standpoint, because we're booking out, you know, one to three months in advance, um, it, it's often really helpful when the primary vet calls us and they say, hey, before I refer this case, are there any diagnostics that you want me to do that can help facilitate things on your end? And so and medications too. Yeah. like we get like, do I start this and should I taper? Do you want me to leave it alone? What do you want me to do before it gets to you so I don't mess up yeah. the opportunity to sample yeah, things? Exactly. Because a lot of the way the hospital, it's just hospital logistics, right? Like when they come in for an evaluation, we're not allowed to schedule ultrasounds and, and radiographs and CTs, you know, on, on the same day. In, in private practice, that's a little bit more doable sometimes, but at least here, we sort of have to schedule them the next day or several days down. And so sometimes when they come with an ultrasound or they come with radiographs, that helps us get one step closer to treatment, you know, if that's the route that they're going to take. So I find that to be really helpful when the vets call me and they say, what blood tests can I do? What do you need? And then I, I, if they're able to do it, then that's really, really helpful on, on our end, but for the patient, because then they've already had the workup and they can come in for treatment, you know? And sometimes the answer is we don't need that, or we're going to repeat mm -hmm. that. Or, and so I haven't spent extra time and money on something that's going to be repeated or not needed for that particular case. I'm yeah, sure the clients appreciate that too, when they realize they don't have to do orthopedic <laughs> radiographs twice, for instance. Yeah. And, and that's, one, that's really, mm. I want to say a hot topic, but that's a big thing, right? Is repeating diagnostics. And a yeah. lot of primary vets say, well, I'm not going to do these, this workup because they're just going to repeat it at the specialty hospital. But I, I don't feel like that's necessarily the case. If, if, we have the information that we need to proceed with treatment. And I think some of that breakdown in communication is what is needed, right? So uh, for example, you might take uh, for, for a cruciate ligament tear, you might take x-ray radiographs, uh, you know, of the knee, but 
for surgical planning, right? We need to take specific views. And so, um, you know, I know some surgeons that actually go out to their primary care or their referring veterinarians and they say, this is how you do TPLO rads. This is the marker that you can put in it so that we can do the measurements at our practice, you know? So having that relationship and saying, this is, this is how we need it done so we don't have to repeat it is really helpful because without that communication, you're going to take radiographs your way and then they're going to have to repeat it, you know, and, and I don't think that we, we want to, we don't, we don't want to repeat diagnostics, you know, we're not trying to just make more money on the patient, like we, we just need to do what we need to do to treat them. Um, and I, and I think that's a misunderstanding, honestly, uh, from, from both sides. Um, and so sometimes the primary vet might be more willing just just send the case without a workup because they're worried that we're going to repeat everything that's done. And I yeah. don't think that we would if there's that communication to say, this is what yeah. we've done. This is what we can do. What do you need? You know? Yeah. And I'd imagine that's different between different specialties too. You know, so obviously you send a case to ophthalmology, they're going to do their three tests at the beginning, probably no matter what, but they should, because those things can change. Yeah. Your TPLO radiographs probably aren't going to change dramatically from, you know, the time that it's diagnosed to the time it comes in for surgery. So um, that's really interesting. I've never heard anybody say that, like we, the clinic where I worked, we had a surgeon that came in and did TPLOs there, but um, we didn't have anybody from a referral hospital come in to teach our technicians how to do those yeah, things. That would be that really, is really cool. cool. I think yeah. That, yeah. And probably, you know, technicians at those hospitals could teach a lot too. They could probably teach certain bandaging techniques yeah. and stuff that, you know, like I remember seeing a bunch of, um, I worked with a Boston Terrier Rescue for a year or two and you know the they were always having their patellas fixed <laughs> before they got adopted out and um and you know the technicians who worked on them really learned how to bandage a leg really well and that's a skill you know it's a learned skill and there's no reason that people in general practice can't learn how to do those things and take those radiographs that right way but we also can't blame them for not knowing if exactly. they haven't been taught and i think a lot of us felt feel a little bit embarrassed at not knowing how to do those things. And we're worried that we're going to be outed as like not knowing how if we do them and then they go to their specialist and they don't, they're, they don't meet a standard, you know? I, I remember bandaging something and I didn't have like some part that I needed to wrap it. And I like wrote in my notes like, uh, this, <laughs> this thing wasn't available. So I made do. Please don't yeah. <laughs> I mean, I think we really, we suffer a lot from pride um, when it comes to these cases. And like, I, I mean, there was one time where I, I was seeing a neuro case. I think it was a vestibular case. And, um, but it was like a five-year-old dog. And so I wasn't sure if it was like a, you know, it, it was definitely not your typical old dog vestibular case. And I, you know, did what I could and then referred it to neurologist. And luckily they decided to go, but the technicians had sent my records before I had a chance to write them. So it was like the vet assistant who was in the room with me, it was her notes that got sent to this neurologist. <laughs> and I mean, she knew that I was going to fix them. So she wasn't even trying to write them like yeah. the specialists would need to read them. I mean, it was, it was, I was so embarrassed. I actually called the answering service that night and I was like, I just, <laughs> yeah, because I had worked with the neurologist in vet school, like he was a resident when I was a student. And I was like, he's going to think I've gotten so stupid. So, so I was like, please, you know, please tell Dr. Brewer, these are not the final notes. But we just worry so much about how we're going to be perceived. How and And I'm sure specialists also don't want to tell us that 
you don't know or that you couldn't fix something or like, how do we take the ego out of these conversations? It just seems like no matter whether we want to admit it or not, it's there. I, and I, I, rem- I was fur- referring a fracture and, and of course all the doctor words oh, are yeah. just gone. It's like the bottom <laughs> yeah. part is like forward and up. I'm like, oh, I'm so sorry. Yeah, when I it's, you the it's busted. And the doctor was like, it's okay. It's okay. I understand. I'm like, I just needed you to say it's okay because I'm, I'm, I apologize. I'll figure out the right words before I send the records. But like, this is, this is bad stuff's happening. Can you yeah. Um, and, 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 uh, like, like Dr. Maxwell said, just having that relationship of like, it's okay. Take a breath. Tell me, it doesn't matter what words, just tell me, tell me kind of what's going on. And it makes it, if you have that conversation ahead of time, it makes it so much easier to have that relationship and to not be so like, like you said, we're all humans. Yeah. We still know regular people words. <laughs> yeah, and it, It's very easy for us, right. To be self-conscious about the decisions we're making when someone else is going to be reviewing over it, you know, whether it's yeah. primary or specialty. And you know, there ha- there has to be a mutual respect, you know, that's yeah. kind of the bottom line. And it honestly always upsets me when I hear primary care vets saying that they felt, you know, disrespected or, or mistreated by a, a specialist, made them feel stupid. You know, it really, really upsets me. <laughs> and, you know, I think that from the specialty side, you know, we have to appreciate that long-term relationship that the primary care vet has built with their clients and with their patients. And there's a lot of times that I've had, I've discussed treatment options, you know, with patients that have been referred and they tell me, thank you, but we're going to discuss it over with our primary vet first and then make a decision, you know, and that always just shows me how strong their bond is with their primary vet and how they're going to rely on them for the decision-making for their pet's healthcare. So I'm always very impressed by that. That's nice to know that that impresses you and you're not just like, oh, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, that's because true. I no, I, I, like I, sometimes that bond is a little too tight, you know, and it's like, sure, well, I don't know sure. what you should do. That's why I sent you there. But I also, <laughs> I also consider that an opportunity to mm-hmm. then have that conversation with the primary vet and say, this is what we discussed, right? Because if yeah. that doesn't happen, then the owner is relaying what you said to their vet and then hopefully yeah. that communicated right. So if then we make that call and say, hey, this is what we discussed, you know, you can then have that, they can then have that conversation well-informed on on both ends and and help them make that decision. This AHA podcast is brought to you by Care Credit. Care Credit understands that all veterinary teams are busier than ever. To help patients get the care they need, the Care Credit Health and Pet Care Credit Card allows clients to access a budget-friendly financing experience anytime from anywhere on their own smart device. They can learn, see if they pre-qualify, apply, and even pay if approved, all on that smart device. With just a tap, they have a friendly, contactless way to pay over time for the services and treatments their pet needs, whether it be a general, referring, or specialty hospital, as long as they accept the Care Credit credit card. Do you have exam- an example, for instance, of, like, I know you you two have worked together before. Um, is there anything that you remember, you know, any interactions in the past that you remember where you were really able to use that relationship in that way? So the the most recent one was a, 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 a Mastiff uh, named Moose that had, um, and th- he was, this is kind of a good example of like coming back to the general practitioner is he was my patient and then the, the owners moved away. 
And they moved back and there was an exam to reestablish him with me. Um, and they said, yeah, he's had ear infections and he's got this mask kind of near his armpit that keeps getting bigger and smaller. I'm like, so about that, I don't like that. Um, let's take a sample of that. And it was a mast cell. It was a four centimeter mast cell, cell in a not fantastic area um, and a gigantic dog. Um, and so we had the kind of discussion of, okay, we're going to do, I need to take really wide margins. This is how we're going to do. We have the option, you know, you can do it ultrasound and x-rays first. Um, and the owners were, okay, let's do surgery. And I said, depending on that, we might talk to oncology. And then he came in for surgery and he'd lost like 10 pounds. Like, whoa, wait, I don't feel comfortable. I think we should go have an ultrasound. So he went up and they called and said, so ultrasound doesn't work so good when they're 200 pounds. I'm like, oh no, <laughs> I, I didn't even think about that. I didn't, I didn't know. And I was like, oh, I feel like such an idiot because the owner's like, of course, a human surgical nurse. <laughs> of course. Yeah. And I was like, I, I kind of, I prepped her for ultrasound. Like we've done the chest x-rays. We might talk about automatically sampling the spleen and, 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 and the liver and those sorts of things. And then they're like, um, so for him, we'd have to do a CT. I'm like, oh no, I didn't tell her about that. <laughs> oh man. Um, but, but that was one where she, they kind of like had the discussion and then kind of came back to me and said, yes, do those things first. And then the owner called me and said, Hey, we've got the appointment to go back up and have the CT scan. But if they find something bad, we don't want to wake him up. How can we be in the room with him? Like, um, let me reach out to Dr. Maxwell and just let her know kind of the thought process there. Um, and so then goes back up and sees Dr. Maxwell for the CT. Yeah. Yeah. And, and so I knew, you know, their, how they were feeling about it. Right. And, um, and, and it was, it was great because we were all sort of on the same page in terms mm -hmm. of owner's expectations. Um, and, um, you know, kind of talking them through the differences between the ultrasound and the CT. And, and it's not like we couldn't do the ultrasound, but I know mo mom wanted to be more thorough and make sure she, we weren't missing yeah. anything. And so, um, you know, we did that CT and all is clear, great for <laughs> Moose. And so, um, <laughs> you know, um, and so then, then Moose went back to uh, Dr. Manganero uh, for, to follow up. Yeah. for yeah. surgery yeah yeah so then we were we were kind of clear and okay we do need to cut it off and, and mom says okay i want you guys to cut it off I'm like well i'm having a baby next week so, <laughs> <laughs> so it ended up being but that's another kind of collaborative part too is that i have uh you know i had a relief vet that had been kind of working for us and i was like hey so i've got this 200 pound mastiff that i need to take this huge thing off like do you feel comfortable and so then another kind of veterinarian got wrapped into it and she did a great job getting it and getting margin and he's doing good and everything's healed up. So it was a, a funny little case where kind of everything kind of clicked together in different ways. And it got a lot of us involved in, in cases um, together. And it, it really feels nice, yeah. right? Like it feels like, hey, we did it. You know, we, we fixed the thing and we made the boy better. And yeah, and, um, that, and that was a case I, too, where, you know, we talked about what the surgical approach would be, like, what, what would I do, right? So this is how I would measure the margin. This is yes. the fascial layer that I would take. And this is all the surgical considerations that, you know, you would need to, to, to take for that surgery. And so, and I, and I read it in your notes, you know, I remember when, when you sent, oh, I was writing it, yeah, when you sent your notes yeah. over and I was going through it, I saw that you had wrote, wrote down what I recommended, which is good because what that if, helped if, the next veterinarian who was going to actually do the surgery. That's so. exactly so I always write it in any way, but I knew that it was a potential for it not to be yeah. me, um, you know, uh, and, and there was, you said like, if you're in surgery and you need help, call me. I was like, oh, 
I can call you when I'm in surgery. Like it made me feel so much better that I'm like, so you kind of like just cut and like just peel stuff out, right? <laughs> so it made me feel so much better to be like, okay, I have a safety net. I have a safety line. It's okay. Yeah. I'm allowed to call, right? Like there's not that like, you know, yeah, that made me feel so much better. I do. I love hearing stories like that. And, you know, we are all so busy. Like I know how busy specialists are. I know, you know, specialists are booking out weeks to months, just like primary care. And I just think about all the times that a specialist has helped me by getting on the phone and talking to me when I know that time is really scarce. But I've always wondered how they felt about it. Like, are they just super nice? And then <laughs> then you have ones that won't at all get on the phone with you. And you're right. always and sending messages. Sometimes they're calling and it's yeah. like, yeah, it's seven o'clock and I'm picking up the kids. I'm like, I'm sorry you're calling me yeah. at seven o'clock. I have my kids in the car. Please ignore yeah. the, you know. But, but like, do you, and I mean- as somebody, I had some pretty significant medical issues myself this year, and I had to see a lot of specialists. And no way in a million years was one of those specialists going to get on the phone with me if I didn't have an appointment. You know what I mean? And like, they definitely weren't going to consult with me to see if I needed to go see them. Like, that was not happening. And so I yeah. think we, I also have that mentality of like, I don't want to waste the specialist time. Like, if the client should go, if I think the client should go, I guess they should go. I shouldn't ask the specialist to spend time with me on a case they may never see. How do you feel about that, Dr. Maxwell? Do you feel like it's sort of, the duty of a specialist because veterinary medicine, the economics are different. The decisions are different. Yeah. I, I wouldn't even consider it a duty. Honestly, I, I think we all just naturally want to help people, mm -hmm. you know, and, and help our patients. And, and I, I never feel burdened by a call from a primary care vet asking about a case, whether it comes to me or not. You know, I, I, I don't care about that. I, you know, I, I want to help. And, and most of the, surgeons at least and other specialists that I that I've talked to also have no problem getting on the phone and and helping you know any veterinarian that that needs help um and you know I I don't think it happens as much here in academia but when I worked in private practice we got calls all the time from from the the referring veterinarian saying hey I'm in surgery this looks weird what should I do you know and <laughs> and that happened relatively relatively frequently and you know I think it's great because it's it's in the best interest of the patient right like if you're in surgery and you feel stumped you're probably going to feel bad calling the specialist like you feel like you 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 went in over your head and maybe you're embarrassed and and you don't need to feel that way you know and and I think that it it's a it takes a brave person to get on the phone and say, I need help. Like I'm in surgery. I need help. <laughs> and so I think because of that, you know, I, I have a lot of respect for, for the, the vets that give me a call and say, please let me know what I need to do. You know? And, and I don't, I honestly don't feel like most specialists would look at that as a burden or a problem because, because they're, they're trying to get ahead of, making a mistake essentially, or, or, you know, again, yeah. trying to just do what's in the best interest of the patient. And we've all been in that situation, right? I mean, specialists, I'm sure in your training, you, you were in a situation where you're like, I don't know what to do now. And it's like a really, really bad feeling. <laughs> and in training as an intern or a resident, hopefully you have somebody who is supposed to be available to you in those situations. Yeah. I realize that could be in theory, 
in some situations only, but, um, but you know, you're, you know, you're not the, the end of the line, but as, as a primary care vet, often we do feel like we have to be good at everything, know how to deal with every situation. And that can be really, really scary. Um, especially for newer grads, you know, cause everything is like the first time. Um, and I'm sure it would be really, really comforting for a lot of more recent graduates to know that, if they don't have their own boss available to help them, that they might be able to call a specialist and say, look, I, I'm stumped. I don't know what to do next. And, and that's something I tell all my students. You mm-hmm. know, I, I tell them when you're out in practice, if you hit a wall or you're, you're, you know, having issues with a case, just call, call a specialist, call one that's local, call, call me, call the university, call whoever you know, you know, might, might know a little more than you, that's okay. And it's okay. Yeah. They should make those phones on the wall in surgeries. They should make those red. <laughs> like, get on the red phone. Yeah. <laughs> Just like have everyone on speed dial. <laughs> like the so, bat phone. <laughs> so the, the CCC did a study uh, where they were looking at perceptions of the relationships between primary care vets and, and specialists. So they surveyed 242 primary care veterinarians and they found that 55% felt that they were treated with mutual respect, uh, but there was 22% uh, that felt that the specialist looked down on them uh, for their treatment decisions or for not referring sooner. So I feel like from that perception, you know, we can do a lot better on our end to build that relationship um, because it's been proven that knowing one another on a personal level will improve the quality of collaboration. Mm. And so, you know, I always, you know, we always talk about, you know, things that we can do such as like those lunch and learns or roundtable discussions, continuing education seminars. Those are all really good opportunities for the specialty hospitals to, to interact with their referring population or their veterinarians around the area to, to start building those personal relationships. And that, that allows you to get on that red phone, you know, and make that call or, or, or text someone um, when you need help with something. And so I definitely think there's a lot of areas um, of growth for, for practices to, to kind of make steps toward collaborating better. Do you see a role for telehealth in collaborative care? And if so, what, what does that look like to you? Yeah, absolutely. Um, I, I don't think that collaboration is just limited to, you know, phone calls and, and emails, you know, I, I think, you know, having radiology review, review radiographs or, or imaging is, is part of that, you know, um, you're consulting with a specialist or collaborating. Um, and I know some of these, you know, um, places where you send blood work to, they have specialists working for them that you can call and and ask for advice. And I think all of that is included in, you know, collaborating, um, you know, between everyone's area of expertise. And so in terms of, um, you know, I think we are a a little bit limited based on state law, right? So for example, in Florida, um, you know, I cannot um, do telemedicine with a client I haven't seen before or within 12 months, you know, essentially. And so if, um, you know, really the, the only way we can do sort of telemedicine consulting is through the primary care vet because they have that established relationship. And so I think that, I think that there is a role there, but there's probably going to be some limitations because 
of state laws. Um, but, but certainly, um, you know, when it comes to having the primary care vet consult with their specialists in the area about a case, um, you know, that can definitely be considered teleconsulting, you know. Do you, Dr. Manganero, do you think if you were yeah. like, I know you, you both have a personal relationship that you've, that's been sort of nurtured through many cases over many years. And that is wonderful. If Dr. Maxwell started charging for those consults. So we, we like to talk yeah. about our perception of value and like, we need to get paid for our expertise. And we're talking about calling specialists with cases they may never see with patients they may never lay hands on and asking their opinion and taking that time. So, you know, saying, taking that a step further and saying, well, maybe they should be charging for that type of consult, which is sort of like for us, like a teletriage where we're not giving direct patient advice, but we're, we're consulting on the case. Do you think your clients would resent having to pay a fee for that service? And I, I don't, and that's part of that, like that, feeling kind of guilty for calling and asking and knowing that, that they might be calling back at seven o'clock is like, well, maybe like, I don't, should they be charging? Cause that's part of what this whole move, you know, everybody trying to make sure that we're being paid for our time or setting the boundaries. And I don't want to blur those boundaries and those sorts of things. And I do think, um, there, I mean, there's even a, there's a oncologist that is just does telehealth right now that I thought would probably might be. And that in between that could do, um, the consulting. And then if the owner elects to do treatment, she then communicates either what the primary care could do or gets them to a local oncologist. And I thought that was kind of an interesting mm. little niche to be in. Um, and I think if I say to my clients and, you know, I, I, we always have that baseline. Here are all the options. If, you know, referral is possible, this is what I would recommend. If I, I probably think that we could say, Hey, if I can set up a, a consult, get you a little bit more detail and it would be X amount. I do think that there's a fair number that would say, okay. And, Let's let's do that. In between, we're not doing the full thing, but at least give us a better idea of our options. I'm also in a big retirement community. And so all, all our specialists, so um, Dr. Maxwell is about an hour and 15 minutes from us. And that doesn't seem like much, but for retirees, if they can't get there on their golf cart, like, yeah. Sometimes they're not going, and so I do think that there that that may be um, a, a service that that can be can be kind of charged for. I'm not quite. It'd be interesting. I think I do think that probably is a feasible thing. I, I don't know how it would fold in, but um, I do think at least in the right clientele, that is something that could be monetized or you know compensated for the time. Yeah, that's a, it's an interesting consideration. Uh, and there are uh, some specialty groups out there that do strictly teleconsulting to the primary care veterinarian, and they charge for that. Um, but their level of involvement in the case is, is much more significant than, you know, getting on the phone and having a conversation. Um, you know, they type up documents and they send information and they follow through on the entire case from beginning to end. So there, there's a lot larger level of involvement in those cases. And I like to think about the collaborative relationship as being the, the specialist as an extension of the, the primary care veterinarian. And so when you think about, at, at least for me, working in a specialty practice where I have primary care, as well as all the other specialists, 
I value of being able to go down the hallway and ask the internist a, a quick question about hypertension yeah. and blood meds and blood pressure medications, you know, or, or going over to dermatology and say, Hey, what do you think about this? You know, and you know, if we started charging each other for that, we would probably lose that collaborative relationship that we have just within our own hospital. And so I, I think that, you know, and, and we will charge if we put our hands on the patient and we're doing an official consultation where we type up paperwork and things like that. But I think for having a collaborative relationship where the primary care vet feels like the specialist is an extension of the care that they can provide. And that may be, like I said, limited to phone calls, emails, and just discussion about the case. I, I don't feel strongly about charging for that, <laughs> but I, but I get it. I understand, you know, that value of, of charging for a time and, and taking those things into consideration. But I think you have to kind of find that fine line. I, I agree. Like there, there's that, I, you know, I don't want to take up too much time, but this, but like you said, it, it does change the relationship mm-hmm. to, from just, Hey, quick question. Like this is, you know, this is what I'm seeing. And it would make it let, if it was always just that way, it would make it less, I, you know, less likely to, for that relationship to develop because then it becomes more of a, a, a not, not a not professional, but like, yes, mm-hmm. a transactional relationship. Yeah. Versus a relationship, yeah, yeah, yeah that's uh, that's true. And the the idea of collaboration sort of transcends like the monetary value of these interactions because, like we know, you know, I fully believe in in telehealth, and I think we're going to continue to see it evolve and grow. But I still don't see myself ever charging for like the client calls and says, you know can I give this over the counter medication to my pet? And I'm like, no, yeah. I'm not going to charge for that. You know, <laughs> I will charge if they already gave it. And then we need to have a conversation about that. Talking you about- know, but I, I, the, the conversations, those little conversations, even if I'm on the phone directly with the client that just build that trust and be like, okay, she's there for me. Like that, that is there for me. That team is there for me when I need them and not charging when it's a tick, you know, and you just, pull it off. Like that kind of thing is so instrumental in building those relationships. I had a little arthritic dog that was on um, meloxicam for arthritis and they came in because he, you know, stomach upset and he's vomiting, he's not eating and he looked terrible. I said, well, you know, anything else? And I said, well, we've been alternating the meloxicam with infants ibuprofen to try and stretch out how long we got from the Medicam. I'm like, guys, this is just call me. We can figure it out. Sometimes there's donated medications. We can try and titrate it down. Like just call me because this was a dangerous decision, you know, and, you know, I wish that broke my heart that they felt that they couldn't ask. And I think part of it was they were, you know, didn't, didn't, were just trying to stretch it as far as they could Mm -hmm. and didn't want to be told that like, that's not okay. But that, cost that little pup. And I, I would, I really want to want that communication to be open. Like, just call me like, sometimes you're not going to get me necessarily, but I can certainly tell my receptionist, no, (laughs) please don't do that. Well, I'll, I'll get you a more thorough answer a little bit later, but please don't give that. Yeah. Yeah. And it's to specialist benefits too. If we feel comfortable calling before we've attempted something or put something off for too long, that should have been seen earlier by a specialist for sure. 
Yeah, and I, you know, I, I, whenever we have uh, patients that are referred to us and they kind of are established, you know, with with us, even just with an evaluation, and they have no treatment with us, they're officially a patient of ours. If they have any concerns or questions, like I'm more than happy to hop on the phone and talk to them about it, um, and you know, that would never happen in, in human medicine. I feel like if no. if you had a question after your first uh, appointment, you're going to have to schedule something else just to talk to them again, you know? And so yeah. I, I think that adds to the collaborative uh, efforts because the, the client is included in collaboration. You know, it's not just the primary care vet and the specialist, but the client's included in that as well. And so how, ha- having them be comfortable to hop on the phone with either the primary care vet or the specialist with help or questions that they have about the, their, their pet, I think is really important. And a lot of times those follow-ups will come back to us. Like I said, if in, in my, in, in my clientele, uh, driving an hour and a half is a lot. So a lot of times they'll be coming back to me for a suture removal or, you know, recheck chemistry, uh, and being, and being comfortable and sending that back up and saying, this is what I think. This is what I told the owner. Tell me if I'm wrong. And then sometimes, um, I'll get a, a note back saying, ah, I disagreed. I called the owner and changed this or, or they call me and say, and, and that again, like feeling like we're all a team. And I think that's everything that we want to do is be a team to help that patient and that family. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, and it is encouraging to see how the two of you have that kind of relationship and how you you don't take mm-hmm. it for granted. You know, it's obvious that you appreciate being able to talk to each other in that way, but also there's no reason why we can't be like this throughout the entire profession. Like we're all here for the same reason. And it's a really small profession as professions go. And that's what we've been talking about that a lot at work as I have been. So maternity leave and I'm, I'm trying to find people to cover and it's, you know, pulling from the vet moms group and like, can anybody and, and kind of piecing it together. But it's like, even the, you know, the clinic next door calling and saying, Hey, we uh, maybe need some saline. Can we borrow something? And then we just kind of like go back and forth. Like it, we're not, I feel like we can't, we have to move away from being competitors mm-hmm. and we're all we're all in it together. Like if we can't see something or we need something, I, I, it's much nicer to be able to call the clinic next door, the specialist down the street and say, Hey, this is what I think, or this is what I can do. What, what are my alternatives? And it makes it takes one level of that burden off. I think if everybody's just be nice. <laughs> yeah. I was going to ask you, you know, one of the questions that I had sent you ahead of time says, what does truly patient-centered collaboration look like? And while you were talking about that, though, it occurred to me that we're not just talking about patient-centered collaboration. We're talking about collaboration that's better for the team. Um, It's more mentally, you know, appealing to and emotionally healthy to have these kind of relationships rather than have it be an us-against-them mentality, whether it's with pet owners or with specialists versus GP or the local ER, like that doesn't get us anywhere. So I'm going to ask that to both of you now, like what, what do you see as truly collaborative care? So say you have a patient whose owners are reluctant about going to the specialist. Um, They'll go if they absolutely have to, but they're not really sure uh, if they want to, or if it's worth it. What does that interaction look like to you? So for me, those are the guys where, and and I am one that like, I do take, I will spend the time Mm -hmm. in the room. I will have that long phone call. And 
preferably not then calling the husband and having the same conversation. Right. <laughs> but sometimes it's, hey, can I'll call you back in a few minutes when you can both be on the phone. But, um, you know, here's what I, and I, I, I do lay out the, you know, gold standard ivory tower versus the minimum. And, but this is what a specialist would get us. And those are sometimes the cases where I tell the owners, I, I, this is what I think, but let me check really quick. And I'll call like Dr. Maxwell and say, Hey, this is what I think. What else can I tell these guys? Or, or, you know, how important is this? What can I do from here? What are the, how does it change our likelihood of X, Y, Z from happening if, if they can't go? Um, and like I said, in my area, sometimes the answer is I just can't, there's, there's no way I can make it happen. Okay, well then let's work together. And and sometimes that means I'm calling and asking a specialist for advice on a case that they haven't seen, but I need help figuring out what other medication to add or where to go from here. And that, um, being able to have those conversations and, and pick up the phone quickly and have that conversation and not be worried that, um, it's a burden. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And, and yeah, at your end, Dr. Maxwell. Yeah. You know, I just want to kind of piggyback off of what Dr. Manganero said. You know, one of the barriers uh, to having a collaborative uh, relationship over a particular patient is often finances, right? So the cost of going to a specialist. And so, you know, Whenever, when, when the CCC did their study um, and, and they looked at some of those barriers, they also surveyed uh, pet owners. They found that cost was not actually the biggest barrier uh, to going, but it was actually they didn't see the value in going. And so that kind of goes back to what you said about um, kind of communicating to, to the client uh, what the value is in going to a specialist um, and how that might be beneficial to, to their pet. Um, and some of the things that we found in, in all of these kind of surveys that, that we've done is that having them, the client understanding what that referral process looks like, or that if referral is indicated, of course, um, or if they're considering it, um, having all of the information before they come and, and the co accurate cost estimates uh, tended to be one of the things that, that, um, clients felt were really important from the specialty side of things. And so, and then when they get to the specialists, you know, how, how do we make collaboration visible? You know, I think that's really, really important. And so I always have all my conversations and I end all the conversations with, I'm going to call your primary care vet and let them know what we discussed, you know, and I always do try to make that effort when I can, <laughs> when I have the time. Right. Um, but I always try to call and say, Hey, I saw so-and-so today. And this is, this is what we discussed. And every time I say that to a client, every time I tell them, I'm going to call your primary care vet to let them know what we talked about. They're like, Oh, really? That's great. And they get really excited. You know, I think making the collaboration visible to the client is really important to make them feel that their patient is at the center of the care team, you know? Mm -hmm. um, and so I think that having those communications, you know, before they get to the specialist, at the specialist, and then, you know, full circle, understanding that everybody is involved in the care of their pet is really important. Uh, that says it so well. And I, I don't know if, you know, many clients, I think, who have been the patient themselves can have a really, I think, deep sense of how much that means too. is like, even veterinarians who have been the patient themselves, you, 
when you're on the other side of the table, you know, and you're thinking like, gosh, I was so scared when I was that specialist, or I really appreciated knowing that that specialist talked to my doctor, my family doctor, and they had a conversation about me, like where I was important and they came up with a plan together. That has happened Mm -hmm. to me and I felt so taken care of. It should be normal. I don't think it's that right, normal yeah. in medicine, <laughs> yeah. but um, but it made me feel just really um, like I was getting my experience at that, that the experience that I should have at that doctor's appointment. And that translates directly into what we do, you know, and it can be so scary to be sitting there at a specialist's office and not know the person or the team. And you're like, I'm here because something's wrong. And um, with this pet that you're like, you can't explain to them like why they're here and you're discussing all these procedures with some stranger. And that just like, I really just feel that in my heart, what you were talking about, where you just look at them and you say, we've got you, you know, we're your team and we've got you. We're all in this together. That's just a great, great feeling. So. That's what I would like for just everyday veterinary medicine yeah. to be. Everybody's on each other's know, side. Right? And I think it happens more often probably than we, like the, the interactions that go well, we often don't remember those, right? We remember the ones where it was like all went downhill or completely sideways, or we find out later that we thought it went fine and it really didn't. But the ones that go well, we never hear about again. They just kind of like, oh yeah, that was just a day. But that's like a little mini miracle every time that happens. And to that client and that patient, that was everything yeah. that day. Um, and Collaborative care to me means that all interactions should be like that, even with amongst each other. And one of the cases that Dr. Maxwell and I were talking about is this this little dog named Bentley that unfortunately has been up at UF through multiple services over over the years, and he's one of the ones that goes back several years. Um, but that that owner right knows the process now. She knows, you know, I'm going to get the phone call or the communication the next day. She's going to call me, and um, so he's been to oncology for scar revision, and then hyperparathyroidism, and then he went to dentistry, and then uh, dentistry one of the flaps de hits and I called and I was like hey can I uh, can I just repair this and like yeah I'm like oh that's easy <laughs> and mom's like thanks thank god I'm like oh okay cool so I've you know fixed the other part so it feels like like every little part of poor little Bentley has been touched by somebody else in, in different parts but everybody's working together yeah. right so I think when he was up for like dentistry peaked in on him while he was there for his hyperparathyroidism through oncology I think so like even that like every everyone was working together to try and make sure that that Bentley got taken care of. Yeah. And he's been in and out over the last several years, you know, four plus years. And so it just shows you how the collaborative efforts can help for the overall, you know, the, the patient, um, healthcare throughout their lifetime, you know? And so, yeah. um, Yeah. Uh, This has been so great. I I love hearing stories like that. Mm -hmm. I mean, poor Bentley, but also like, Thank goodness for you guys and for Bentley's parents. Mama. <laughs> yeah. Uh, the, the fact that is, I always feel like, oh, wait, she goes, who, who, where now? You know, who do I need to? I'm like, I'm so Yeah, sorry. I know. But, but she's so good and he's so good. And, yeah. Yeah. Aww. Well, so if people, like, I know when I first heard about the CCC, um, I thought, oh my gosh, this is really cool. How do I find out more about it? How do I get it? how do I get these conversations started in my area? You know, cause I felt like people weren't talking about collaboration. People were like going to local CE and just like looking at each other, you know, like side-eyeing <laughs> each other, like across the table. And like, what is she going to ask? You know? And I hate that. 
And I wanted to know more. And I I didn't really pursue it because I didn't really know what to do next. Where can people like me go to find out more about the CCC and about how they can sort of develop that voice in their community? So they can uh, first uh, check us out online at the collaborativecarecoalition.org. And, um, you know, we are always looking for speaking opportunities. We're doing local, um, you know, local uh, conferences or or national conferences, uh, trying to get the word out and and also, again, share our research uh, showing that collaborative care improves uh, patient outcomes. Um, And so, you know, anyone interested in collaborative care can reach out to any one of us on the board. Um, they can find all of our contact information um, on the website, and, um, and and we can kind of help them uh, through. We've developed some guidelines uh, and a white paper to help um, uh, practices uh, learn to collaborate better. Um, and so we're happy to help anyone that wants to kind of take that next step. That's awesome. And we'll put that contact information in the show notes. You know, we have been growing as an organization, getting the word out. And I think, you know, the more and more people we we have being aware of the process of of collaboration and the benefits to collaborative care, um, then, you know, it's going to be better for everyone involved. For sure. Yeah. Well, thank you both so much for spending the time. I really appreciate uh, having you both hop on to talk. Um, Dr. Manganero and her pillow fort. If you're not, I have the nuggets. If you're not watching, um, there's a there's a pillow fort behind her, which is very it's very cool. It's the first pillow fort we've ever had on Central Line. <laughs> um, but I really appreciate your time and the efforts you're both putting into making these relationships um, the norm in vet med. I hope that one day they absolutely will be. Um, so it's definitely a worthy mission. Thank you for having us, Katie. Yeah. Thank you. Thank you both, and thank you all for listening. We'll catch you next time on Central Line. Hi, everyone. Katie here with Frankie, my little sidekick. Uh, If you're listening and not watching, uh, he's a little chihuahua, and he's usually here with me on my lap making little snuffly noises while we're recording. So he's my little podcasting buddy, um, and he'll probably get restless and jump down here. But I just wanted to to tell you about this case that I was thinking about the other day. Um, You know how we all have that case that pops into our mind sometimes? And mine is this little white dog that came in, I was probably one or two years out of school, um, and he came in, she came in on a Saturday, uh, she was having trouble urinating, and of course she was one of those little white dogs, like a Bichon, or something where you look at them sideways and they get bladder stones, and sure enough, she had a bladder full of these spiky looking, you know, probably calcium oxalate stones on her radiographs, and um, she couldn't, she basically couldn't pee at all. And her family was this dad and his two kids, and you know they paid in cash. They asked how much everything was. They seemed really worried about her, but also really worried about money. But they wanted to go to the ER. It was Saturday afternoon, and I didn't have the team to do the surgery, so she ended up going to the ER with them. And I... You know, I was honestly surprised that they wanted to go. I had given them a ballpark for how much things would cost, and I would have thought that that would have been financially out of the question for them or that they wouldn't even have wanted to try. Um, And I would have banked on her being euthanized ultimately, um, which is a shame. Because while I was writing up charts that afternoon, I got a call from the ER doctor who said that the family had applied for care credit and they'd been approved, and the dog was being prepped for surgery. And... I think about that case a lot um, now more than a decade later because 
it taught me something about making assumptions, about reading people's intentions as well as their wallets, which we all can have a tendency to do. But that dog was probably saved that day by care credit, but also by the person who thought to offer the care credit. I had not even mentioned it at the appointment, um, maybe because they paid cash or maybe because they seemed so concerned about finances that it didn't even cross my mind that they'd want to try. Um, and sometimes saving lives isn't just about being the person with the scalpel or the person running the anesthesia. It's about being the person who approaches a situation with compassion and gives somebody options that they didn't know they had um, because that person saved that dog that day too. And, you know, studies show and personal experience, of course, show that moral distress, which is knowing that we can help a patient, but being prevented in some way from doing so, is a really common cause of pretty consequential stress for veterinary professionals. And of course, one of the biggest determinants of whether we can help a patient is whether uh, our clients have the financial means to do so that day. And I can think of dozens of times, probably hundreds of times, where that was a factor. Um, And You know, I think maybe there was a scenario at least once a day for 12 years like that. And so I just wanted to thank our sponsor, Care Credit, for being there for that little dog and her family and all the dozens to hundreds of other patients who I know I was able to help because of them and because of the CSR teams who guided the clients through the application process and who made sure that they understood all of their options. Um, I, I just really want to thank you for that. And also, I want to thank Care Credit for taking a chance on a brand new podcast uh, where we had zero listeners and zero guests when they signed on. But now we are making these episodes with these amazing guests with so much to share. And I'm just so grateful that Care Credit is here for us at the beginning of this journey. So remember that your clients can learn and they can see if they pre-qualify and they can apply and they can pay all from their smartphone now, which was not the case uh, 12 years ago. So I'm very grateful for that too. And that means that we can all do what we do best, which is uh, go and use our skills to take care of little, little people like my Frankie here. So care credit, thank you. And thanks to all of you. Thanks for listening to today's episode of Central Line, the AHA podcast. If you love what you hear, please take a moment to leave us a rating and review. For more resources to help you simplify your journey towards excellence in veterinary medicine, we invite you to visit aha.org. That's A-A-H-A dot O-R-G.